Welcome to the second episode of the UU Science Podcast of Bones, Brains and Pink Elephants, where we answer your burning science questions. I'm Joel. I'm Ruben. And I'm Kat. And today we're going to talk about music. One of you sent us this very interesting question. How does music affect our state of mind? To answer this question, we talked to Dave Baker, a postdoctoral researcher at the Center of Music Cognition in Amsterdam, and to Ellie Postumus, who actually doesn't enjoy music. Enjoy listening. If it's making music, listening on the train or partying in a bar, almost everyone enjoys music in some way or another. It's very likely that you, before listening to this episode, were listening to music. Although not everyone enjoys music to the same extent, I think it's very rare to find people that never listen to any music at all. To understand why, we first need to have a look at how music is processed in our brains. Researchers who study this use an MRI to look at brains of people while they are listening to music. Parts of the brain that become engaged when we hear music will show up on the MRI. In a magazine by the University of Central Florida, I found a nice summary of how our brains get to work when we hear music. When you hear the first notes of your favorite song, the temporal lobe springs into action. This is not surprising, since that is the part of your brain that processes what we hear. What is interesting is that mainly the right side of the temporal lobe becomes active, because language and words are processed more on the left side of this part. When you start to enjoy your song, the nucleus accumbens becomes active. It's the system in our brain that seeks rewards and pleasure, and music induces the production of dopamine. While it is very important to us, this part of the brain also plays a huge role in the development of addictions. You could say music is a drug. Heart racing, shivers down your spine, this piece of music activated your amygdala, the part of your brain that processes emotions. If you sing along to the song, your hippocampus, responsible for retrieving memories, springs into action, and if you start to dance, your putamen gets to work, it processes rhythm and helps regulating coordination and body movement. This may all sound very simple, but it's actually a very theoretical and simplified model of how it can be that we enjoy music. To go more in depth, we talk to Dave Baker. I'll let him introduce himself and his research to you first. Yeah, my name is Dave Baker. I am currently a postdoctoral research associate, or what's normally called a postdoc, at the University of Amsterdam. I work in the Music Cognition Group, uh, which is led by a researcher named Henkyan Honing. And I'm currently working on a project that's basically trying to figure out what people essentially find meaningful when they listen to music. So really what we're hoping to do in the long term is sort of like disentangle the relative contributions of like, um, like melody, rhythm, and timbre as they're sort of found, essentially, I guess, meaningful to listeners. So Dave is mainly looking at what elements make music meaningful to us. When we asked him about why he thinks music is so universally loved, he first made sure we understood that the definition of music may not be easy to make. What did you think about that? Well, I thought um, it was an interesting uh, question, actually, because I never really thought about the, you know, I mean, when you imagine music, you imagine, you know, um, either your favorite artist or, I don't know, Beethoven or uh, Mozart or or something like that. Um, But then we kind of went into this direction of um, maybe different cultures don't think of 
I don't know, Katy Perry's music as music <laughs> <laughs> or, um, you know, that the different cultures might be perceiving uh, musicality in very different ways. Yeah, I think animals uh, um, make music too. Um, but of course, it's way different than humans make music. Um, but yeah, it's hard to find the, the relation between uh, animal music and uh, human music and then define music as a whole. Yeah, that was what was Davis saying as well, that uh, that we take our concept of what music is and try to apply it to other uh, cultures or other uh, species. And then that might not be the right way to do it since music is in some ways subjective as well. Uh, so it was really interesting that he mentioned that first and also with universality that what we think is universal might not be the same thing as music but something within music that is uh, applicable to everyone. Everyone can hear it but it might not be... <laughs> so there's a deeper underlying yeah. mechanism which, which causes music to have this this uh, experience. Yeah, mu- yeah. I mean, not everyone likes uh, Beethoven or Katy Perry, but there is something within music that might apply to... Yeah. So you have the rhythm, and you had two other factors that make music, right? What, what were those? I actually didn't even know the one word he, he said. Uh, timbre. Timbre, what is that? <laughs> uh, timbre, yeah. I always call it the color of the sound, but... That <laughs> might also be very abstract. As a non-musical person, I don't know what the color of music is. So basically, you have the note you play. That's the pitch. And then you have the rhythm in which you play the notes. It's, uh, that's the rhythm. But also, you can also... Everything that's not fixed hmm. within music. Like, it's not this certain pitch of the note. It's not the rhythm, but everything else. That's uh, <laughs> so it's, it's hard very, to find, yeah. Very um, interesting to uh, look at because yeah. it's also how you can sometimes make a difference between different perform- performers on the same instrument without uh, yeah. knowing who it is. You can still say, like, this is a different one than the other one. So it's also the technique that somebody or the skills set uh, somebody has, like, that changes. No, the it's their personality, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. The, the color, yeah. Yeah, the, the <laughs> color. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I can't define it, but I understand what you mean. As yeah, in like just experience from experience. <laughs> Not that I play anything music myself, <laughs> but from experience, from listening yeah. to other people. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's why I like to listen to certain pianists or violinists more than others because, but that's their unique sound. Not that they play it better or worse. Rhythm yeah. or pitch-wise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I get it. But back to our question of the day. How does music affect our state of mind? A big question that a lot of people have when it comes to music is how does it do what it does, right? So if it really, if we just focus on the sonic elements, right, just the waves that are hitting our ears and then turning into from a physical signal to electrical signal to a chemical signal to somehow represented uh, in consciousness. Like, how does that process end up resulting in especially things like, you know, emotional reactions to music? Um, and it's a great, it's a, like a great question. Cause a lot of people think like, oh, well, it just has to do with association, you know, um, but that doesn't really necessarily give a good 
time specific answers. Like why, but why is it at specific moments where we kind of know like this is the good moment, this is the moment that I'm waiting for. The drop, I guess. <laughs> That's a perfect example. It's, it's uh, where it's like you know something structurally about the notes itself is going to lead to a specific response in the music itself. So one mechanism, knowing that there are many working at the same time, just like talking about the whole brain thing, is this idea of thinking about the structure of the music itself, kind of like how we would represent it uh, with some sort of notation. And then the whole idea behind this line of thinking is that you know, your brains are little like prediction machines, right? So you're just going around through the environment. And it's just like picking up on stuff. You don't have to think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so basically these frequencies that we keep track of um, then form the basis of the expectations that we're going to have um, that result then in the emotions that we may be experiencing. So the whole idea is if you can build a whole sense of anticipation around something like the beat dropping, then when you finally do do it, your brain's like, ah, yes, I successfully uh, predicted that. So now I'm going to reward myself with, um, you know, whatever sort of ensemble of chemicals that your uh, brain wants to. But of course, there's lots of other aspects, right? So you're hanging out, you haven't heard a song that um, hasn't been played in 20 years. And then you're like, oh, man, this really reminds me of like, you know, growing up in my hometown or something. And then it brings back all of these feelings and thoughts and um, lots of great videos online of that happening, especially with people who have experienced some sort of like neurodegenerative disease, right? They're just sort of like a lot of the, their other facilities aren't working too well. And then they hear some song and it just like turns something on inside of them that they just couldn't have accessed otherwise. And it's not like it's structural in the same way that we were using the word before to talk about these moments that you're rewarded when the beat drops but it is tethered to these structures in the sound in which they're literally, this something is going on. Maybe it's the exact same recording, but it also could just be the melody itself, right? An abstract representation of what we took from that sound and then somehow put in memory. So basically, we don't know exactly what it is that makes music meaningful to us. We can only look at processes and elements of music that contribute to give music meaning. But of course, we can do a lot more research on this. Researchers often look at animals to determine what the key factor of enjoying and understanding music is. We also asked David if he had experiences with these kinds of studies. Can you actually study animals to better understand how uh, music to humans works like? Or if it, is it like they actually are processing it way differently than we think they are? Sort of what's actually going on. Um like, you know, when other species listen to sounds that we might call music, right? So what happens when when they are listening um, to these? And one of the, I think, clearest and I think most interesting examples for myself is some stuff from, I guess, the bird cognition literature, where for the longest time people are, you know, you sort of assume that birds sing melodies to each other, right? So you go outside, you know, I was out last night, um, and you hear these birds singing, and then you imagine like, oh, there's a time component to it, there's a pitch component to it, it's unfolding over time. If you're a really clever you know, composer like Messian, you, know, you go out and you, you write these things down and you try to transcribe them and then put them into something that we as humans understand to be music. I say, okay, well, how are they thinking about this music? Like, you can't, like, ask a bird, like, you know, what's going on? Like, you think about that in terms of, like, absolute <laughs> pitch. Like, do you know the actual labels of these? Um, or are you using something called, like, relative pitch, right? So the ability to 
that all, basically, yeah, all humans have to like identify like the song Happy Birthday, regardless of what note you started on. You know it is like one sort of larger gestalt. And you need to think, okay, you can't ask the bird that. You have to come up with some sort of experiment to say like, okay, which which one are they doing? And there's like all these really cool like learning paradigms where you know you teach the bird to do something based on something that they hear. So you can infer what sonic information is meaningful to them. And in this one paper from 2016, I think, they end up basically finding that um, it's not even like the pitch content itself that the birds are using to basically have is meaningful, but rather they're using essentially what's like the spectral envelope. So just like the timbre of the sounds like this, like sound of it where maybe maybe what's happening is that pitch to the birds isn't as important as pitch is to us right so we've like anthropomorphized bird music and put it into the human space <laughs> and been like oh this is what's important to the bird uh, the birds because this is what's important to us but then at the end of the day we realize well you know actually it's something totally different for them and you can you know find these stimuli um online and listen to them and you know uh be pretty blown away that like this is what the birds are actually like using to communicate with each other so then our question for this okay is that is something going on you know in terms of a human analog or a, a human analogy to this um, where there's things that we find really meaningful in the sound element itself like the timbre but you know maybe are neglected because we don't have the language that comes from like the world of music theory and music analysis and kind of what you would you know, talk about if you t got really far along in like um, taking private lessons on like a, w a Western instrument, right? Where like we're talking about time, we're talking about melody, um, and we have this really rich vocabulary for talking about um, that and harmony, right? But we don't necessarily have it for talking about timbre, but it is there, right? We really know, you know, if I was to make a whole bunch of different vowel sounds with the same pitch. And the same loudness, and I saw e a o u a a, like the the timbre is changing, right? And there are scientific sort of like models that can roughly approximate what's actually going on in the sound itself. But like to bring that into a a conversation that you're having like at a bar with someone on a Saturday night, and talk, terms of talking <laughs> about wait, this music is, is not not about to happen. Um, so that's what kind of what we're interested in is, is saying, okay, can we figure out those things? So despite providing us with a lot of information on music perception. Looking at the animal kingdom definitely has its limitations. For example, while perfect pitch is a relatively rare ability among us humans, most animals can recognize any pitch without effort. So, do you guys have perfect pitch? Definitely not. <laughs> not <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no. For sure. <laughs> no, me neither. But I think it's an interesting ability. But do you mean, uh, can we sing the perfect pitch or perceive the perfect pitch? Uh, perfect pitch is actually the ability to perceive the exact pitch of a sound. Oh, then definitely not. Oh, also, I can't sing it, but... <laughs> <laughs> but because re reproducing listen. a pitch is something different, because then you also need some vocal abilities to exactly reproduce a certain pitch. While processing of music seems quite universal in humans, some people do actually have trouble with it. Conditions relating to music processing can cause people to be unable to recognize familiar tunes or detect a wrong note in a melody, a condition called receptive amusia. 
More extensively, there are people with a complete inability to recognize pitch, rhythm and notes, including the inability to recognize a familiar tune or reproduce a line of music. These conditions can be present from birth, but they are mostly associated with some form of brain damage, impairing the function of one or more of the brain regions involved in processing music. So, to see if uh, someone uh, has one of these uh, music processing uh, impairments, there are a lot of tests around and online. And I also included a small test for you guys to see if you can actually process music. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hell yeah. (laughs) For the first test, you heard two melodies. And I will ask you if they are the same. So what did you think? I think they were definitely the same, yes. Yeah, I also think they were the same. Well, you correctly identified this melody. <laughs> and on to the next one. You will hear two melodies again. No, here's something wrong, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, it, it it is slightly different. Yeah, I don't think it was that uh, that tricky one, but maybe one of your listeners thought they were the same. So for the second test, I will play um, a short melody with a rhythm, and you have to say if you hear an unusual delay in this rhythm. So did you hear it? Yeah, there w- it was really weird to do here because you expect the sequence to be um, going in a certain way and it's just kind of choppy in a way. Well, I don't know. If if you put like two of three these fragments next to each other, um, then it would become the, the normal rhythm, right? This is a literal question for me. If you only have one segment, then there is no fault, right? But it's just... If it's a repeated segment, yes, then you can say, sure, there's a, there's a delay. But if it's just one segment, then it's like, <laughs> there's no delay because... <laughs> Do you get the question? Yeah. The point uh, of this test is that you can identify that there is a delay. It's not about if it's right or wrong in this okay. place. Yeah. If you can identify, like, the rhythm changes throughout this segment, then you can identify rhythm, and that's the part that they are testing on. Not if you like or dislike or if you think it's right or wrong. Because there is no right and wrong, of course. There is no right and wrong in music. (laughs) Some people would disagree, probably. (laughs) I think so, so, yeah. For the last test, I have a song for you and you can listen to it and you can tell me if you recognize this song. So, which one was it? Happy birthday. Almost sang, but I don't <laughs> think I should <laughs> continue. But it's the happy birthday song. Yes, definitely. It's very interesting that you can still recognize this because it was played like very, very wrongly. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like uh, a lot of music and a lot of or- musical artists cr- take creative liberties and they twist um, songs that we already know. So I think your brain is kind of um, l- has kind of learned to recognize these patterns anyway, right? And of course, this is one of the most 
if not the most popular song on earth. I I get it that we recognize it. Yeah. True. Maybe maybe also because we never sing it in tune anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> True. <laughs> but I also think that uh, you would recognize more uh, songs even if it wasn't a happy birthday song. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm not sure if you ever heard of uh, Shitty Flute. But <laughs> it's it's uh, it's a guy who just has a flute and then plays songs very 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 wrongly, like completely off, and you can still recognize which song he is playing just just because you know the rhythm and the like the overall like you can fill in the gaps. You can fill in you can fill in the gaps. I mean, oh. we talked with it. Uh, about this with Dave as well, that our brains are like little pattern recognition machines that don't even need all the correct information to identify that something is a song we know. I wonder if our brains actually, um, by default, work on um, gaps anyway, even if they do get all the information. Um, I just wonder if they, you know how how you have these like uh, wordplay um, exercises where you have a word and then you have the beginning letter and the end letter be the correct letters, but then the middle is scrambled. Yeah. So I feel like y- your brain just automatically works on like the least amount of information. Yeah. Um, for the maximum effort. Yeah, Dave actually had a really fun test for this. You have these uh, you have these things called um, like garden path sentences. You basically say some sentence, and your brain is trying to pick, got to guess what the like you know how the structure of the sentence or why it's mm-hmm. necessarily meaningful. And then at one point you realize that you assigned like the wrong part of speech to a specific word or whatever. So mm-hmm. like I think one of the examples is like uh, like the old man the boat. Old man and the boat. What? Yes. Mm-hmm. No. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so you think, right, it's going to be the old man, and then it's like the boat. Like, well, what do you mean? Like the old man, the boat. But then you realize after the fact, if you look at it when it's written down, it's it's actually the the uh, the direct object, I think, is the old, right? So the old people, man, as in are uh-huh. the ones attending to the boat. <laughs> the old people are attending to the boat, right? The old man, the boat, as opposed to the old man, the boat, yeah. which doesn't make sense, right? Right. Yeah. So that it's, it's, a, it's an example of a your brain trying to make forward predictions about mm-hmm. what's going so, to happen based on previous experience as well. So it can happen. Uh, I mean, yeah, a great example, I think, of how, yeah, this, yeah, it's always, it's always going on and you make these proje- projections uh, about what's going forward. Yeah. And then there is one other music processing impairment we haven't discussed yet, musical anhedonia. It's not as much as a disorder as amusia and agnosia, but more di- a different wiring of your brain. So... Do you have any music that never fails to touch you? Lots of uh, numbers, actually. Uh, I like uh, classical, but I also like rap music. I like anything. And yeah, I, you I ever got like teary eyed? Well, one song, but I can't quite remember the name. It was played at my uh, grandma's funeral. <laughs> so yes. Yeah. So connected to it, some mm-hmm. memory. Yeah. Yeah, I think I also have songs that are connected to memories. Like I l- listen to a lot of uh, like Nordic, folky, quite kind of sounds, and so <laughs> I have memories of of listening to those uh, that type of music in uh, when I was driving through New Zealand, and like seeing all the green and and uh, the trees and the mountains. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's mostly like emotional connection. Um, 
But I don't know if I have a, like a piece of music that makes me cry by itself. I think for me, uh, usually it has to be connected with a visual. So in a movie, it can definitely make me emotional. But by itself, not really. I've, I don't think I've ever had that. Yeah, well, for me, it's a bit a bit the same. I like a lot of it, uh, like movie soundtracks, and you can just picture what happened at that moment, and you're like, ah, this is such a good moment. I have to say, if 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 Seaman has a the Interstellar soundtrack, that 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 hits you right uh, in the in the heart. I have that with. Uh, have you seen How to Train Your Dragon? Yes, oh, of yeah. course. The test drive soundtrack <laughs> never fails to be like, ah, this is a good. <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, just purely uh, sounds that you like enjoy. I just listen to uh, like Irish songs a lot, <laughs> so because yeah. I think they they're inherently super um, cheerful in a way. Like they they sound in a way they sound quite ancient. I, I don't know, but um, yeah, like Irish and Scottish songs. Like th- it also comes to the folky nature of everything, but. They make me happy. Yeah, they make me happy. Well, if you really get these kind of emotions from music, then you don't have musical anhedonia. Because uh, people with this condition have a weaker connection in the brain between auditory processing of music and the dopamine system. They enjoy music less or even not at all. For me, as an enjoyer of music, this sounds horrible. But how do people experience this themselves? So we went to talk to Ellie Postumus, who discovered that what she experienced was likely musical anhedonia when she wrote an article for the scientific magazine she works for as an editor. So you have musical anhedonia? Well, it's not an official diagnosis. I noticed since when I was young that I don't especially like music. I don't hate it, but not as much as other people like it and most of my friends they went to concerts one was a really big fan of Guns N' Roses and sometimes I went with her to the small concert but more to do something social or to drink some beers but that's it not for the music no 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 my father really loves music but I don't have the same experience yeah so can you explain a little bit what musical anhedonia officially is there's a when you listen to music your there's a brain area that uh, processes sound uh, and there's a brain area, the, the reward system, that uh, they both activate in normal people who listen to music. They are connected. And if you see activation in the area that processes sound, at the same time, this reward system is getting active. But uh, in people like me, only the system that processes sound, you see some activity in it. And the reward system, well, maybe a bit, but not much. Uh, I interviewed a scientist from McGill University in Canada, and he's doing research on this musical anhedonia. And he he explained there's a connection between the two areas from the extensions of the nerve cells. And in normal people, uh, it's just a big, uh, nicely ordered uh, connection with all the nerve cells. And with people like me, it's more like a... uh, How do you say it? It's messed up. (laughs) And it's... It might work a little bit, but uh, not very well. Um, so the reward system is not activated. Mm-hmm. I do feel relaxed when I hear some classical music, but that is probably because my father always listened to it. And mm-hmm. for me, it's a, a memory of Sunday mornings when I was lying in bed and I heard my father listening to this music. 
this was for me oh okay everything is fine probably because my reward system is activated out of memory it's um so it's music on Edonia, the reward system isn't activated so it's also connected to feeling emotions uh from music as i understood correctly but can you still recognize emotions in music without feeling them like if there's a sad song can you identify, identify it is is a sad song or i, thi- I, uh, I think so <laughs> you think so yeah because... i think so but i just don't feel it it's more rational uh... yeah you're like this sounds like a sad song but i don't feel sad because of the song no yeah no. do you like movies and then or or like watching people <laughs> yeah that, that's one of the questions i wanted to ask like is your enjoyment of movies how does that work if you i, I do like oh. movies but i'm i don't have uh, my um how do you say it uh, sometimes i fall asleep before the movie ends <laughs> i do like it but uh, my attention span is it's not that big <laughs> yeah because me if i, I watch do a movie, like reading books yeah. a lot more than movies maybe i feel like a lot of movies are built on the premise of using music to kind of narrate the, the emotion in the movie actually so that's yeah. that would be quite interesting to see if like if you just see you know like moving grass and then they, they want to, it's either a sad scene or... Um, yeah, but know. I do recognize it. But yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how that works. Yeah. Maybe I'm less touched than other people. I do like movies, but maybe not as much as other people. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think they did an experiment once with like horror movies, but then without the music, that they were like 10 less times less scary. scary. Yeah. <laughs> Because well, I, I don't really feel horror music movies are that scary. Yeah. Maybe that's the that's good. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Explain because a lot of enjoyment from music also comes from like anticipation of what's coming next. Well, interesting. Yeah, I I, I sometimes watch a movie with my uh, boyfriend and he's more scared than I am. I'm like, why why are you scared? <laughs> why is this? <laughs> Also, you, of course, interviewed a lot of people for the, for the article. Were there any things that you thought were really interesting that you found out? Well, that it, at least in uh, his studies in Canada, it's, it's uh, some sort of taboo for most people. They actually don't dare to tell their friends they don't enjoy music. And I, well, I never experienced it like that, but I was uh, surprised by that. So maybe you know a lot of people who don't like and there's like three to five percent of the people who who have this i would like to to uh to experience one day in life mm-hmm. how those people experience music yeah just yeah. to see like oh, do i miss something or is it just no just because i'm yeah. curious curious yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know what i miss because mm. well I, I i ask some of my colleagues what do you like uh, about music and they they said, said things like, oh, I feel like a superhero when I'm in my car and I put the music on very loud and I get goosebumps from this and that. And I thought, oh, well, that, that must be great. <laughs> but I have that with some other things. I did play an instrument. Though. You did? Yeah. But I think mostly it was a bass guitar. But I was in love with the guy on high school who played bass guitar. So I wanted to impress him. <laughs> it was not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it at all. Yeah. Because do you think the people who have musical anhedonia can enjoy playing an instrument? Or do you think that's probably not possible? They might enjoy it, but because of, maybe in a band, because it's cool to do something together. But I don't think 
like most musicians would probably really feel emotional with it. No, I don't. I don't know. So I think it was really interesting to talk about to Ellie about how she experiences music. For me, as a musician, it would be really weird to not enjoy music. Talking about musicians, by playing an instrument yourself, even more brain regions become active. Parts of the brain involved in coordinating movement and physical memory and the connection between the right and left side of the brain are also more active and more developed in people who play an instrument. When listening to music, professional musicians even use more of the visual cortex than a language center. They likely imagine a music score or playing the instrument while listening. We asked Dave about this as well. So you're in the, you're talking about like musicians and people who are listening to music. Uh, do they also uh, process music differently when they hear it? If people like only listen, or if people can al- also play an instrument? Yeah. So I think yeah. Again, you have to think about what is your working definition of what you mean when you say like a musician, right? So like you could think about okay. You know, and is that relevant to the question you're about to ask, right? So that could be a great question, right? About um, are do people who play instruments have different responses to listening to music, or maybe more specifically to the music of the instrument in which they play, right? And there is, I, I think they've even done, there's some neuroscientific stuff looking about at this for like I think it's like oboe players and timbres or uh, with or maybe even trumpet players too where like when you hear the sounds of the music in which you are most familiar, um, you get an activation in the brain that doesn't exist for people who don't do that. But then the question again, it's like, well, is that because they just hear it all the time because they're practicing? Or is that something to do with their actual production um, itself? So like as a scientist, you sometimes get really quickly into the next question, but that's the whole point, right? Formalize, think, do something and then look retrospectively, and then try to look prospectively. Um, but I think that's the whole idea of this modularity aspect, is like, as you do something very specific within like the universe of music, you're going to get better at it. Like, it's quite difficult to just commit effort to something, um, and then not reap some sort of change in the brain, which we would call learning, which is, of course, going to change the response. So like, you know, vague answer, of course, yes, that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, more interesting version of it, like, you know, tell me exactly what you think is going on and why, um, and then make some sort of empirical investigation about the world to figure that out. Yeah, because uh, I saw also I saw, I read somewhere that uh, at least if you play an instrument, you can also imagine playing that instrument. Mm-hmm. So if you hear it, you can also imagine you playing that. Mm-hmm. And that's of course something that people who do not play an instrument cannot really. Yeah, they can't recreate that experience. But then also then what's, you know, what's to say that music is also somehow special compared to like, you know, being really good at like football or something. So like I have not played what I would call soccer or football (laughs) (laughs) for like, you know, 25 years or so. And so I could not imagine myself like juggling a football on my foot or something. And so in some ways it's like, yeah, of course, like someone who plays tons of football could imagine that in a way that I couldn't. And we could use that same logic for music, but then like, okay, well, what's the next thing, right? What makes music unique? Why is that important? And why should we care as like, you know, psychologists or neuroscientists? And there may be, I mean, I think there are reasons, but it's important to think about that too, especially when it starts to bridge to this world of, um, especially like taking music lessons, does it lead to transfer effects, right? In terms of like, get really good at the trumpet. Are you better at math? 
does that matter? You know, it matters a lot for, you know, uh, how we spend our time and resources and think about how we talk about music and education. Um, but, you know, also simultaneously, do we want to do a dangerous thing where we tie the value and worth of music to its ability to make other things better? And I think that's a, a, a dangerous move yeah. to do. So in the end, we learned a lot about how music affects us. Even though it's not figured out in detail yet how and why we enjoy music. What do you guys think is the main reason we enjoy music? I think for me it's mostly um, connected to memories. And um, I also enjoy movies. So visual stuff um, and then connection to sounds is important to me, I think. I like the, the social aspect as well. If you sing a song together, that's always fun. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah, I think for, for me it's like a lot together and the, the memories associated with songs, the social aspect of making music or singing or being at a party together. But also I think our brains really like patterns and really like the patterns that are in music and to get expectations, to get surprises from that music. And that's also why if I hear a new piece of music, I can also still enjoy it, even though it doesn't have a memory or a social connection yet. True. But I think in the end, the question of why and how we enjoy music might not be the biggest question, but how we can use this strong connection with music to help people. Music therapy is already used in some neurological conditions, like Parkinson's disease, and as a tool to help people feel less pain during medical procedures. To what extent this can be used is a question for another day, however. For now, I'd like to thank Dave and Ellie once more for their input and for you for listening. We would appreciate it if you could take five more minutes to fill out the survey attached to this episode so we can improve our future episodes. Next time, Ruben will talk about pink elephants and the inability of some people to see them. See you then!